Welcome to episode 23 of Coffee and Circuses. We were on a bit of a hiatus last week coming off the back of hosting track, but it's back to reality now and I'm finally over my track party hangover. First off, just want to say a big thank you to all of those who took part in track, whether it be organising sessions, presenting papers and posters, or just supporting the conference via attending. Also a thank you to my co-organisers and a shout out to our student volunteers who did a great job throughout the conference. Finally, my appreciation goes to the bar staff in Darwin Conference Suite who provided copious amounts of tequila at the track party. So much tequila. Now, even though track is finished, it's the gift that keeps on giving, as during the conference I recorded several podcast episodes, which I'll be releasing over the coming week or so. First up is Deb Myers, who presented in the general session on her virtual reconstruction of the Carver Mithraeum. We discussed how this project combines all three of Deb's degrees, how she came to focus on the Mithraeum, how VR will probably become a common feature of museums in the not-so-distant future, how people's brains can create a sensory experience in VR, even when there are no actual smells or objects to hold. And then to round off, you can listen to me squeal with delight as I try on the headset, because, you know, Mithras is my jam, man. So thanks for joining me for episode 23, particularly as a wise man once said, nobody likes you when you're 23. definitely not your first track how many tracks have you been to now track racks have you been to this is only my second because i came to the uk three years ago mm-hmm. so it was my first year here and someone was like oh go to the theoretical roman archaeology conference i was like what are you talking about i'm a <laughs> classicist and so it was a good experience and then i came here this year just because i was like okay i had this great idea let me present <laughs> yeah because you were presenting on experiencing a Mithraeum in 3D. So, I mean, well, first of all, explain a little bit about the, the, the project in itself. Okay, so um, my first dissertation was in ancient cultures, and I did sort of what's the religious landscape of Karbroth, and then after that, I got more into the Mithraeum just because I was like, okay, this is, this is a fascinating site. It had so many interesting things that were found there. It was used um, from the 1st century to the 4th century, and it changed throughout that time. And then I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to model this. I'm going to make it show the time lapse. I'm going to show how it looks today and how it looked back then, or well, may have looked back then, but that didn't happen. So I ended up just taking the 4th century state because that's what you can see today. And then, um, based on the archaeological evidence, I sort of did a 3D modeling of it. I had to learn 3D modeling first, which was really rough. (laughs) So that was good. Um, Yeah, that's it was exciting. Had you ever heard of Mithras before you'd come to come to the UK, or was it was it literally just through studying Carbra that you were first kind of exposed to to the cult? Yeah, so I did my undergraduate at Duke University in classical civilization. And there, I mean, you get a very wide range of studies um, because we don't necessarily study just one thing because I did my degree in both classical civilization and business. And then I sort of merged the two and sort of like were there businesses in the Roman world and that sort of thing. So I had heard of Mithras before. <laughs> how did you first get into it then? I mean, we just talked about like you were aware of it before, but how did you end up like just studying classical civilization? What, what, what kind of drew you to it in the first place? I was going to study abroad my second year, and my supervisor was like, you need to pick a uh, degree before you go abroad. So 
um, I was taking a couple history classes and she was like, okay, you could either become a historian or you could become a classicist. And I was like, let's go classics because I like ancient history more. So that's what I did. <laughs> oh, nice. It's interesting. I mean, it just suddenly occurs to me, like the notion of like classic, be a classicist or a historian. But I suppose you can kind of be both, really. I mean, because yeah. you did another degree in ancient civilizations, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's going to be history-based, surely. So you've kind of integrated both anyway in the long run, I suppose. Yeah, because I don't like languages. I got a C in my first ancient Greek class, so I was like, nope, not going to do that. Um, I took Latin, which was okay, but... I prefer looking at how people lived and how they used spaces and that sort of thing. Yeah, so that's drawn you down the, the more archaeological route now, I suppose, as well. Yes, although, I mean, there's a big debate between text and material culture and that sort of thing, but I don't think it really exists. No, I, I don't think <laughs> either, actually. I'm, I'm a big proponent of interdisciplinary approaches. I don't think that you can really ignore one and just take one by, and take the other one by itself. I think the best way of approaching anything is to to employ text, archaeology, epigraphy, drawing on this variety of sources and bringing it together. Because I don't see, oh yeah, I mean, I can understand why in some situations you have to do that. You have to put some stuff to one side, but the notion of just ignoring like whole, one whole body of evidence just seems crazy to me. Because by taking all the evidence and combining it together, it gives you a much more holistic kind of view of the subject, which is surely should be the way forward. So yeah. I don't know if you've seen this, but I mean, it might be politically incorrect or whatever, but the the issue with Pompeii recently and um, Christina Kilgrove, her research was pretty much just taken down by Mary Beard and oh, it, was, it was just a giant mess, but because they said, well, classicists have known that Pompeii didn't erupted in the fall. Oh, so the, oh, this is the whole Twitter storm thing. Yeah, and, yeah. it was... It was really hard to watch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there. Are, I mean, there's always tensions that exists, and it's it's one of those things where I suppose if you'd said to me a few years ago, "How do you consider yourself?" I would say I am an archaeologist. I would not refer to myself as a classicist, and I would probably have said I don't want to be a classicist. But I mean, this is something we've come back to a few times actually on the podcast. Uh, this is Greg Wolf. Greg was on the podcast and, and talking about his kind of approach to the past. And then Ian Haynes was on a while ago, and he actually brought up something that Greg said, which related back to Greg's episode, which was about he asked Greg, you know, how do you define yourself? And Greg's kind of response to that was like, well, I don't really define myself as being anything. It's it's I am what the question needs me to be, and I think that's the best way of approaching it. It's it's drawing on the range of evidence that we have. Uh, and employing that to, to come to the right answer. I think when you start referring to yourself too much as being a classicist or an archaeologist or, or whatever, you start boxing yourself in a bit too much. And I think that's going to create difficulties and it's going to really limit you as well. And also in that kind of case as well, it's not going to, <laughs> it's not going to build bridges as well with people that maybe understand evidence that you don't have access to or you don't have an immediate kind of understanding of that other people got more developed understanding and you need to talk to them. But if you're just like, oh, you're a classicist, like I'm an archaeologist, I don't do any of that tech stuff, but tell me about it. Like, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to make them want to collaborate with you. So I think it is, I think it's better to kind of go in with an open mind and not define yourself too much. I suppose I still am an archaeologist, but you know what I mean. I've realized recently, I think it's better to kind of keep an open mind as to try not to define yourself as one single, single thing. I think in the one hand, that's really good. But then when you're trying to publish or when you're trying to get a job, you're very much defined by one thing. And I mean, I've studied... Like I said, I studied business, I studied ancient cultures, I've studied software development, I've studied um, 
behavioral economics. So sort of looking at psychology and um, economic theory and how people are, as Dan Ariely says, predictably irrational. And and so I, I've never thought of myself as, I'm going to study the Romans. I've always thought like, oh, but the Romans also have to deal with behavioral economics and psychology. And then we can also use things about computers and throwing other things in. So it's always been exciting to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I suppose in your case, like particularly like what you're doing now, like the VR reconstruction of the Mithraeum has been, you know, that's not something I'd be able to sit down and do like at all. And I don't think many archaeologists would be able to do it, but you know, you'd be able to do that because of your own background. So how did you kind of go about your reconstruction of the Mithraeum in, in 3D? What sort of things did you do you draw on to kind of build this image, what the Mithraeum looked like? So a lot of it was just, what did the archaeological reports say? What do other people say? And then where do they differ? And then looking at sort of just, what do other people do? And also, what do other sites have? So like the Temple of Mithras at Karbroth doesn't have the cult statue, but we know that was really likely to be there. Um, and they found a shard that was probably the horn of the statue, although... I'm not convinced by that at all. And so just taking the the cult statue from Housesteads and putting that inside of it was just... Because I, I wanted to have that sort of ugly... Uh, I shouldn't say ugly, but it is ugly. Peaceful break. <laughs> uh, it's that, that lovely um, British sort of <laughs> way to do a Roman thing. Yeah, it's lovely. Uh, <laughs> Actually, no, it does have It's kind of ugly. <laughs> but so I just using like 3ds Max is what I learned how to do 3D modeling on, and I had learned 3D modeling with a six-week session, so I'm not good at it at all. And I took, I think it was a thousand pictures of the site itself, so that way I could take the different textures from the stones, from the altars, and all sorts of things. And then I took GIMP, which is a free photo editing tool, and I cleaned them up and just put it in. And it kind of looks similar to what it would have been. I learned the importance of keeping the scale. Um, I started with using Unity Scale, which is like one, one meter, essentially. But then I was doing things in feet and inches, so it just completely blew out of proportion. <laughs> How did you go about tackling things like the roof uh, okay well so that was just essentially me going oh look someone has a roof tile here and then I took a picture of it from a museum and pasted it on and I, I just did a triangle because I don't know what the roof would have been like and I mean I highly doubt there would have been windows in the temple I don't know, wouldn't but there would have been maybe though. some slits like to let smoke out or something it's possible I suppose I mean that's, that's that's a good point because you would imagine they would have things like incense or something like that burning in there so they might ideally have had some sort of ventilation system did you include as well in the in the reconstruction with where it's got the three altars at the end is there anything where the because one of the altars is actually hollowed out and there's it would have had a candle or a lamp and something is that actually is that in there as well yes, like it so is. It's beaming through here yeah. because this is something we talked about earlier about the kind of uh, approaching the kind of ritual aspect of the cult and, and recreating it as well because in some cases we know like the release would revolve or the release also would have maybe light shine through or anything i was wondering is that something you thought about incorporating at all like i mean what i might just more broadly actually i suppose like you know because again as we were discussing earlier like 
is that something that you look into, like the idea of populating the image and and trying to depict rituals in in the space as well? Because right now the main kind of building it's, it's the building isn't it that you sort of experience and i mean as you were saying like you go through in the centurion is it centurion he's you... a pre- uh, prefect prefect sorry he's talking to you and explaining things as you go oh no so you are playing as marcus simplicius simplex who's the person who dedicated the hollowed out altar and then the god is speaking oh it's mithras yeah to you. sorry because so, i didn't know how to tell people I didn't want to tell people you're going to be in a Mithraeum because that doesn't make sense to most people because what is Mithras? What's a Mithraeum? Mm. Um, I've given this sort of talk at a lot of technology conferences. Well, not conferences, but like sessions as well. And people are like, you talked way too much about history. So (laughs) that's kind of the mindset I went down with how I was going to build this. (laughs) Um, So yeah, you're, you're going off as a prefect and going to the temple and I wanted to put more people in there and I wanted to have them sitting on the altars and eating and drinking. Being able to rig and animate these characters is really, really difficult. And especially in VR, we have this thing called the Uncanny Valley. So the more realistic that you get, suddenly you have this huge drop off where people are like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to look at that image. Um, think sort of like Polar Express. Have you seen that movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's very creepy because they look lifelike, but they're off just enough that you're like, you're not real and it's weird. And so when you have that sort of effect, it's really bad. So I couldn't do anything with other people and trying to animate people inside the space. Um, and at the end, I really wanted to have this sort of saying that they found in some of the inscriptions on one of the temples inside the empire. And I wanted them to say, like, hail to the sun runners who are from the sun or hail to Saturn, that sort of thing. But to get that chanting at the end, but I didn't have enough people to do that. And it was summer and yeah. (laughs) The other kind of issue is the... I mean, as you were discussing before, because of the the kind of the limitations, because the other big one obviously being money as well. So I was going to say, like, what are your thoughts looking forward about VR? I mean, I suppose actually, I've talked to people before actually on the podcast about the utilization of virtual reality, and, and it has been mentioned before about cost, like using in museums. Do you think in the not too distant future it's going to become more economically viable for museums? Yes. And, Okay. I don't because I mean, it's completely outside of my, my kind of bubble in terms of like, I don't know. I mean, obviously things nowadays are developing very rapidly, generally anyway, but is that something that you see transforming quite significantly uh, into a much more accessible, becoming much more accessible in in the near future? Yeah. So if you think about 2010, um, Stanford VR, their heads have cost about $50,000. And then 2013, you could buy one for around 600 you need a high cap powered computer to run this but just the headset itself and now i have things like the oculus go which are 199 pounds and you just have your um your one controller but the oculus quest is going to be coming out and there's also the vive focus which is a standalone headset for 399 pounds i'm not sure how much the vive is going to be and, and inside of that, you have two controllers, so it tracks both your position and your orientation. So as I walk forward one step in the physical world, my camera will also move with me in the virtual world. So I have this sense of presence, this embodiment inside the virtual space. And I can use my hands and touch objects and throw them around. Because one of the things that people want to do when they're inside an experience is take 
grabs something and smash it into the wall to see if it breaks. And that's really important. <laughs> and so museums will be able to take this technology in the near future, I would think, for, I mean, probably $100 a headset-ish. I, I can't say for sure because no one knows. But I do think we're getting to the point where now we're trying to get away from having the computer and just having the standalone headset. And I do think that things like Google Cardboard, which is okay, not necessarily truly VR, but it does help inside of like classrooms and you can have a bunch of people going in at one time looking at the same thing and experiencing it. And that's just really powerful. Mm. Do you think as well the headsets are going to become increasingly more manageable in terms of like people will be able to keep them on for longer? That's why I guess the question is weight. And do you think they're going to become more... I suppose they are going to become more compact. That's kind of inevitable. But are they going to become um, smaller? Uh, try that on. Okay. <laughs> Just for the sake of people listening at home, I've had to try on a headset. So how heavy is that on your head? Oh, wow, that's actually not that heavy. I mean, it, you can obviously still feel the weight, but yeah. I suppose if you're kind of caught up in the animation of it, then, yeah, you probably wouldn't notice it too much. But compared to some of the ones that I've tried on before, if you go down to the other end of Canterbury and you go to St. Augustine's Abbey, they have VR headsets in there, so you can look at the Abbey as it would have looked in the Anglo-Saxon period. They're quite big, even though it is very effective. I mean, this it's probably slightly dated now in terms of the way you look. It's very kind of blockish when you look at it, but it, it still has a really interesting kind of impact on you. Also, I find when I take the headset off of that, I find very weird because I feel like I've been moving, but I haven't been moving. And yeah, it's, it feels really disjointed. In fact, actually, something that occurred to me earlier was the fact that when you're talking about Mithras, there is a slight irony of the, the with the initiation process in Mithraea, the initiate would wear seemingly a blindfold and, I mean, as you mentioned earlier in your talk, the, we have the images of uh, somebody pointing a bow and arrow, an initiate's head, a sword, or it's possibly a torch being waved in their face. Sometimes I wonder about those images, whether or not they were shown those images ahead of time, and then, then they've got the blindfold on. They think something's happening, but it actually isn't, but they're made to feel like it is. I mean, there's another image where it's been suggested a scorpion's being placed on somebody, which... It reminds me of going to like museums or whatever when it's like, what's in the box? And you put your hand inside and you can't see it. But if someone tells you it's something, you're like, oh, but it's actually not that. It's just something that feels like that. And with a scorpion, you could have just somebody's hand kind of running. You know, when someone's like, there's a spider on your shoulder. And you're like, oh. And it just, he kind of had me thinking about how in some respects, like with VR, it's, it's almost kind of a similar thing, really. You're putting something around your eyes and you are... A, imagining something that's not there and you're experiencing it even though it's not there like so for example scorpion you were saying that with the the experience in mithraeum when people were being told about pine cones being burned that they could actually apparently smell it and, yeah. or they thought they could smell it yeah it's, it's a really interesting thing um and i don't know if it's just because some people had overactive imaginations but i asked them overall how did you feel like your senses were involved in this experience and the answer was fairly high, so I did a seven-point Likert scale, and it was around six points that people said, yes, I was fairly involved. But then when you get down to things, so vision was really high, sound was about medium, but then when you got to things like haptic senses, where I only had one 
um, vibration against their hand. So as they picked up the torch, they felt this vibration. But that was it. And mm-hmm. people said, we're across from one to seven on that. And they said, yes, I was completely involved with how things felt and inside the space. And I don't understand that. And they also said, I asked them about their olfactory senses. And they said, yes, I completely had all these, the smell of pine and torches. And I was like, you didn't really? So I don't know what happened with that. Um, but I did have another thing inside of it, which relates to sort of the initiation. So I, as the person was lighting their torches, um, I had the God say, well, at one point, like, do you remember when the torch burned your cheek? And that was something that one person really remembered very, very well. Um, so I would asked before the experience how much knowledge they had of the stuff after experience. Um, and she had put down, oh, I remember they burned themselves. And then the 10 days later, all I could see in like big block writings on that questionnaire was, they burned themselves. Mm. And it was just, it was fascinating. Yeah. No, it is, it's incredible. As I was saying, like when somebody's in that kind of situation, like virtual reality or even just watching something, like how people get so immersed in it. And yeah. it's, it is fascinating just what it does to the, the human brain, how it affects it. And it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see in say the next 10 to 20 years, like 20 years live, we'll look back at you know, what we have now and think, God, that's so, so antiquated already. I mean, you know, you think, I mean, it strikes me sometimes when I think about computer games from like the, the 2000s, like look ridiculous now in comparison to, to what you have on like PS4 or whatever. It's it's crazy how much that's kind of come along. And I suppose like VR is the next, is, is well, it's going to be the next thing after that really, isn't it? Like immersing yourself into the, the game almost entirely. And I think you can also do something, well, especially of Mithras, is that you can have that vision completely dark and you can just have the sounds mm-hmm. and you can... You can have tracked tracked objects inside your world. So if I were to grab a torch or if I were to grab a bone arrow, whatever, I could have that tracked inside of it and I could have that vibrating against my palm or I could have something happening. And then you can have the smell. You can have wind blowing at you if you want. You can, I mean, I don't know how you would do this, but you could raise the temperature in the room or lower it, whatever you want to do. And, and that person who can't now see would then be just filled with all these senses and perhaps that's what an initiate might have felt like yeah, just absolutely, yeah. scared or well, who knows it, it's exciting yeah it's fascinating to say to someone I'm now going to put a scorpion on your back and then just run your fingers up their back and see yeah. they've already went ah <laughs> uh, yeah it's great so overall then um, I mean just track in general what, what's your what, how you found it this year it's been good I've enjoyed some of the sessions I mean I have a five year old so he kind yeah. of ends up talking during the sessions and I get a lot of angry stares and then I have to leave. So, <laughs> um, But I've, I've enjoyed a lot of the looking at the sensory and the cognitive aspects because that's it's just fascinating to me how you can look at, I mean, even just something inside of a relief and then think, well, but actually it was something that was used and people would have understood it. And if it was in color, like what would have happened then? It's it's just wonderful. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating now because I think there is this this idea of sensory experience in the ancient world has really become a big avenue of of research, and there's a bunch of people on the podcast actually recently talking about it. And in some respects, it almost it does bring the the ancient world to life again. So in in the past, we've had a tendency to look at it via reliefs or architecture, objects behind glass cases. It's very sterile, 
And it's really is kind of colouring that picture again as the kind of feeling, well, I suppose the sights, the sounds, the, the, the smells, these, these kind of ideas that just weren't things that people really touched on in the past, but they were there and they have a big impact on how people lived. I mean, and what you're doing as well with the whole VR headset as well, you know, the, the way that's going to develop in the coming years as well. It's going to, I think, really transform our understanding of the past and we're probably not a million miles away from the fact where people will be able to put on a headset and then walk down the street of second century Rome and experience it. It won't obviously be exact, but you'd actually get a reasonable idea. And it's, and it's going to be very interesting how that in museums can be used to change the wider perceptions people have past as well and, and of archaeology in general. I think some companies do a really good job at this and they have these sort of 3D models inside of museums and one of them... I mean, it's not VR, but they use it's inside of Rome, and it's it's a, of an Etruscan tomb, and you stand inside of it, and you use a connect, so you hold out your hand to go forward, and you hold out your hand to the side to go right, and it's very, very awkward, but it's something that's really interesting, just because they have this room completely dedicated to this tomb, but all the objects are inside glass cases, and these objects are in Rome, not where they were found in Etruria. So how do you, I mean, the 3D model really helps contextualize these objects and they say, oh, here's the tomb that they were found in, here's what it looked like when we excavated it, that sort of thing. And it's just such such a wonderful thing to see, um, just because whenever you go to a museum, you can usually see an object and you can see sort of, sometimes you can see these break points, especially in pottery, and you can see where people glued it back together. And you think, but how is that found? How is that used? You can't touch it. You can't do anything with it. And it's very rare to be able to like go and handle museum objects. So having VR inside of that, just showing what the site may have looked like, what it looked like when it was being excavated, what it looks like today, and just being able to place everything back together and how the objects were used. And having the users themselves just use the objects, it's just such a great tool to understand holistically. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, the possibilities are endless. Just to, just to wrap up now then. So you, you're on Twitter and you do have a website as well, correct? Yes. So if you want to share what those are so people can, can look you up. Sure. I'm Deb Mayers. It's M-A-Y-E-R-S 24 at Twitter. And then I'm also at debmayers.com. And you can see all sorts of fun things that I do. Um, because I'm a software developer, I'm trying to make it look nice, so sometimes it looks a little funny. Brilliant. Anything else you want to share at all? I don't think so. Do I have anything else I want to share? But actually, you should try it. See what you think as a as someone who's actually studied. Oh, wait. So you can actually I can yeah. try out. Oh, right. Oh, right. I could do a live action, go on the... It's the this is going to put me inside the Mithraeum. Yeah. Well, hopefully. We'll see. I mean... Don't, don't be too judgmental. Oh, no. Because <laughs> yeah, I emailed you in, what, was it December? And I was like, so. I don't know what I'm going to do with this. <laughs> so you got a very long email. <laughs> I think one of the issues is that um, not everyone's IPD, which is the inner, inner pupillary distance between your eyes, really fits. So as hopefully you can see with it. One of the interesting things about VR and museums is this, this aspect. How do you how do you handle people looking at everyone as they are in VR? 
and do that, and then... Oh, wow. Here, we can turn up the volume a little bit. The Ascension Ceremony is about to begin. You, as a newly appointed Pater, must light the temples for the ceremony. The temple of design is a map of the universe, inside to appear from the dark west to the light east, where my image rests. Oh, wow. As always, the imagery inside the temple. It's so crazy, but you actually can turn your head around and. and counterfortes. Oh wow, that's so cool. Oh, where do I grab my tool from? Oh, you can't grab it. Oh, okay. So this is originally in the rift where it has better tracking. Ah, the auto is lit up. Oh wow. That's incredible. Oh, thank you. Oh wow, like actually, like wow, like I mean that's 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 the crazy thing about it. When you when you see it on the screen, like you showed it earlier, I don't think it actually does it justice of what it feels like. It's that whole sense of being able to turn your head, but when I, when you're able to look down and see counters and counterpartes either side of you, I was like, what? <laughs> Yeah, I, I wasn't able to put the mother goddess inside of it just because modeling that was really difficult. But I think there's so much. I'm, I'm just excited to continue on with this. Yeah. Um, although I work at a bank now, so it doesn't really happen. Yeah. Oh, that was fantastic. But does, does it seem historically accurate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, well, I, I, possible, I, 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 guess. I can give suggestions if you like. Oh, well, yeah, no. I, yeah. Please do, because I'd love to redo some of it. And then ideally I'll go on to a PhD, but I have to be in the UK. I think it's two more years before I get it at oh, the home yeah. rate. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a form of PhD's money. But. Right. Thank you very much for doing yeah, that. Thanks. That was fantastic.